Life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? Welcome to Christ-like Thinking, a podcast dedicated to discussing how Christians can live out Romans 12:2, which tells us. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. On today's episode, I'm talking with Steve Teriak, a friend who went on his first international mission trip just four years ago, but is today in the process of moving to Nagarote, Nicaragua, where he has bought 54 acres of farmland. Writers such as Francis Chan and David Platt, along with seeing the desperate need in one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, made Steve face the call of the gospel, a call to die to self and live in Christ. So Steve literally and figuratively bought the farm. Steve, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. So tell me about what you're doing in Nicaragua. Well, here recently, within the past year, um, we have invested in Nicaragua by buying a farm. And um, we this year we're able to host not one but two groups. So we're glad that the Lord's opening some doors for us. What are you going to be doing with this farm? Um, basically, we're going to use it as kind of a home base for um, missionaries, for pastor retreats. Um, I guess the big vision is possibly to have a school there, an orphanage. Uh, a medical clinic. Um, those are kind of our big dreams at this point, but we're kind of starting from scratch, so it'll be interesting to see what path uh, we kind of take. That's the big adventure. Well, your first international mission trip was four years ago, right? It was. So how did you, in four years, go from your first trip to this? Well, I guess we can kind of start from the beginning, um, how we end up in a third world country like Nicaragua. My wife was doing the music for Vacation Bible School um, for a very small Hispanic church, and she was invited to go over there to do the VBS. So uh, during the end of the week, the pastor for the small Hispanic church said, you know what, you do such a great job doing this music. Why don't you come to Nicaragua with us this year and uh, do it over there? And she was kind of floored and uh, had never been approached to go overseas, and so she said, well, let me talk to her, my pastor, and then let me talk to my husband, and the next thing we knew, we were signed up and headed down to uh, Nicaragua for the first time. And um, the group you went with overall did not have a lot of experience, did they? No, it was a very green group, uh, with the exception of our hosts. Um, by the way, the pastor of that small church uh, he was Cuban, and his wife was Nicaraguan, and so that's how um, they uh, led us down to Nicaragua. So um, the, basically that first year, uh, the entire group was green. No one had been there before, so it was a great experience uh, for all of us to go there for the first time and really get our eyes opened to a third-world country and not just the big city, but to see the outskirts and the small towns and to see how people there are living on a day-to-day basis. Right, because you, you go to Nagarote, which is, uh, what, 45 minutes or so from Managua? Yeah, it's about 45 minutes to the uh, 
to the west, northwest, um, in between the capital city of Managua and the old city of Leon. Right, and they don't get a lot of missionaries outside of Managua, do they? No, we've heard um, that a lot of missionaries, missionary groups, uh, go to Managua. Obviously, it's the largest city in the country. It's the only international airport in the country. And so what we learned is about half the population of Nicaragua lives in and around uh, Managua. It's just the epicenter of of uh, trade and goods in the entire country. So everything kind of happens in the big city. But outside of there, uh, what we've learned is uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, missionaries or mission groups going to these small towns. Um, we've heard of a few, and uh, they're exceptional groups that go out to the countryside. But they're kind of far and few between. So how did you end up going from that one-time you know, trip to Nicaragua to literally buying property there and trying to build a, a permanent mission? Right. Well, I guess after the first year, we had such a great time. The second year, we were kind of into the leading role with our church. We still had hosts at this point. After the second year, we uh, had a great time. And next spring break after that summer, uh, my wife and I decided, you know, why don't we just, we had kind of had this calling to come back to and spend our spring break um, in Nagarote. And so my mom and my wife and my daughter, um, we all flew solo down to, I think we flew from Miami to El Salvador, El Salvador to Managua by ourselves with no translator, uh, no one to help us. And so we, we rented a car at the airport and uh, managed to make our way to Nagarote. Got detoured a couple of times, but we got in okay and no problems. And we just kind of spent that week, you know, diving into the culture. On that trip, we actually did, we looked around. We were kind of, we knew we wanted to invest in the country, um, but we weren't quite sure. So we, we looked at a, I want to say about a 180-acre farm in the north, um, just north of Esteli, where they um, grow tobacco, and it's north near the Honduras border. So we had a neat kind of day trip going there and seeing the countryside, and we looked at the farm. It was really pretty, but it just didn't feel like home to us. And so we returned back and looked at a few farms, um, and then ultimately decided on the one that we uh, kind of fell in love with, and which is 54 acres, and it's fenced and cross-fenced, and uh, it has a ridge that runs kind of the entire center portion of the property that goes up about, I don't know, maybe 150 feet in height. So it has a great view of the surrounding kind of countryside and farms, and then just a wonderful view of uh, Momotumbo, which is a big volcano outside of Managua and the entire volcanic mountain range that surrounds it. Okay, well, you, you talk about this as uh, feeling like home, and, you know, you talk about this, like, you know, picturesque location, but I also know that it it's kind of on the outskirts, on a, a really horrible dirt road. <laughs> um, you know, it, I think most people, based on your description, would picture something very different from the way it actually looks. So, so explain how you just feel like this is home and how you came to to be so invested personally in a place that most Americans would never imagine living. 
really it all comes back to the simplicity of life in Central America. And um, life is incredibly simple. There isn't this network of electronic communication going around. They do have the Internet. They do have cell phones. But they're not really bound to working 8, 10, 12 hours a day at such a fast, furious pace. Um, most towns completely shut down from noon till 2 o'clock for siesta time. Uh, it just literally shuts down. And I think it's just that simplicity of life that really has attracted us to Central America. And the farm is about um, three miles outside of town on a dirt road. Um, it probably hasn't been improved in a very long time. That's something that we're trying to look into to um, help the folks and, of course, help us <laughs> get in and out uh, to the farm. Um, most people generally will ride bicycles from town uh, to the farm or a horse and carriage. Typically, they're growing uh, food or um, bringing milk into town from the dairy cows. And then the, the city that we're in is a big cheese producer. And so typically, you'll see tons of um, horse and carriages with uh, fresh milk of the day that had been milked that morning um, coming into town to the cheesemakers. So I think it's just for me, especially in this rat race uh, in America, and the 12, 14-hour days, and we're so wired with cell phones and email on your cell phone and Facebook on your cell phone and a computer, and um, it just time seems to slow down. How did Francis Chan influence all this? Because I know you uh, read a lot of Francis, Francis Chan and, and uh, listen to a lot of his sermons. Right, right, right. I have spent many, many hours watching uh, YouTube sermons of Francis Chan. And I think he just, in a way, he simplifies the gospel. And I think one of his big preaching points is, sure, it's great to listen to pastors and what they have to say. But I think he says, really simplistically, just you, for your own good and your own peace of mind, please read it. And you interpret it the most simplistic way that you know. Because I guess in seminary, if you've been to seminary, like you have, you can basically make any message you want, and you can read the gospel in a way that makes your viewpoint sort of collide in, in, a, in a parallel way, in, in the same fashion as the Bible reads in a way. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so I think for him, when... The Bible talks about helping widows and the orphans, and, you know, what does that really mean? It just means to help widows and to help orphans. And when you just really look at that in the most simplistic sense, you think, wow, this is so simple for you to be able to help widows and orphans, and which we ran across in, um, in that small town. There's a grandmother is watching after both of her daughters, um, have passed away, and she is watching after her 11 grandchildren. And so through our church, we've been able to help feed these grandkids. Um, we've bought beds for them. A lot of them were sleeping on the ground um, in her home. We just, in the simplest simplest of senses, we've been able to, to help them. And that carries on with the widows that we meet in town. 
and, you know, that we try to look after. And I think that's why you see a lot of these places in these third world countries where Christians are there, you know, they're opening up orphanages. It's just, it's the gospel. And uh, loving on those people that have been put in unfortunate situations by losing their parents or losing their their, uh, spouse. So I think that's how Francis Chan, he's just kind of simplified um, uh, the reading of the gospel. In fact, I think for me and listening to him, it's just a simple, uh, a simple explanation, and he's able to to verbalize that in his um, in his messages. You talk about the simplistic life, and uh, you talk about helping people, you know, widows, orphans, things like that. But in all this ministry to physical needs, how do you right. keep your ministry focused on the spiritual needs of people? Right, right. That's a great question, and that's something that we ponder over every simple activity that we do in Nicaragua, even needs that we see. And we always tell folks when they go down, you know, just spend three or four days really trying to get a grasp of the culture because you're going to see tons of needs just from the first second that you leave the airport. And so with everything that we do, we try to incorporate the gospel. We try to incorporate serving. I think that's that's huge. We travel 1,300 miles to serve the folks of um, Nicaragua. Anything that we're able to help someone with, we always try to tell them that this is from God. It's a blessing from heaven. We're just merely the vessels. This isn't something from Steve or Angela. We're just fortunate in so many ways to be able to provide food for you or to provide a Bible, to put a ceiling fan in a church, to buy chairs for a church. And church is just that's even just a simple need to, to put chairs uh, in a church building. So it's, I think it's really important for us to kind of step back from all of this and say, look, this you know, this is for me, this is a gift of God, and I'm just a vessel that's able to deliver it. So I kind of always have to keep ourselves in check. It's a great feeling to be able to help someone, but then you just have to really realize that we're merely the vessels in this. Now, in your work in the city, you've developed a partnership with some local churches. Can you tell me how that has happened and how that works? Well, from the beginning, uh, we worked with just a few churches, and a few churches turned into four or five, and then last year it turned into seven. And then this year, I'm sure we'll end up working with um, a few churches on the outskirts of town, so that will kind of um, expand our work with these churches. And so when we're working with them, like, for instance, there's uh, a church on the outskirts of town that was um, just built, but it didn't have any doors didn't have any windows in Nicaraguan construction. Uh, they'll do all the um, walls and roof, but no floor. So I think two years ago, we were able to donate doors and windows to that church. And last year, we were able to help um, install the floor. And then this year, we have a member of our team that is actually going to be able to put tile down there. And so he'll come down for a couple of weeks, uh, one of our members, Todd and he will install a new tile floor there. So with these churches, you know, we can visit them, we can talk with them. Um, It's pretty easy to see their needs, um, even down to microphones. 
a simple PA system, musical instruments, um, with some fabulous, just absolutely fabulous musicians that are uh, in Nicaragua. So some of the simplest of things, chairs, ceiling fans, um, obviously doors, windows, floors, um, microphones, any needs that the members of the church that you know, are, are brought to our attention, we'll always just try to take a look at them and, you know, do we have the ability to meet those needs and help them out? And so I think even though we're at seven churches that we're working with, and I'm sure there'll be a few more this year, it's just kind of an ever-growing process of um, seeing, meeting new people and seeing their needs. And um, I think that's kind of a fun part about it. It's the big adventure when we go. Four years ago, when you went on this first trip, uh, I don't think you ever would have imagined that it would have affected you so much. Probably never in my wildest dreams were I on a, a farm uh, in a rural countryside in uh, Central America in a place called Nicaragua where I grew up um, hearing about Ronald Reagan and Oliver North and the Iran-Contra affairs and the Sandinistas and the rebels. Uh, we just kind of have a piece about it. It's a real easygoing piece. We have a lot of people, even folks from our own church, that told us, you know, we're crazy. Why are you doing this? Can't they take your land from you? Aren't you scared every time you go there? We hear the gamut of warnings. But everyone in the country we've met has been genuinely warm, really laid back. Like I told you before, it's just a simple lifestyle. And we just really enjoy the culture. It's, like a, it's kind of what it's all about. In order to buy this farm, you had to get a lot of money, and that involved <laughs> and that involved selling, you know, you know, your really nice house here in America, and uh, doing some other changes to how you lived here. Uh, do you ever right. do you ever wonder if it's all worth it, or you know, feel like it, you've made some huge sacrifice or something? Uh, I mean, from the beginning, each time we would go to Nicaragua, and we would come back to um, the American dream, um, come back to 10-foot ceilings and granite countertops and uh, crown molding and a swimming pool and a two-car garage. And I just felt, I just kept feeling like, why am I coming back to this giant mansion? And why am I pumping every dime that I make into a uh, roof over my head? So during that spring break trip I talked about earlier in our conversation, I read this this book called Radical by David Platt. And I just remember sitting down on on the kind of the front stoop of the hotel and reading it and just kind of watched this lifestyle pass me by. And um, where I'll see a family of four running by on a, on a bicycle. And it sounds kind of crazy, but um, if anyone's ever been to Central America, they've probably seen three or four on a bicycle with no problem. So I just really read it and uh, kind of got convicted by it. And so our story is we went back home and we said, you know what, um, we think we can put some money into a piece of property down here and, you know, do all this crazy stuff with a pastor retreat and a school and an orphanage and all these big crazy dreams. And so our daughter, um, at the time, she had four years left in high school. And so our plan was to put our house for sale and, the market's horrible at the time, and no one's buying houses. 
and we'd have three or four years to sell it, and that would give us time to prepare. And that was after spring break. That summer, we went on a mission trip, and about a, three or four days into the trip, we got an email from a realtor that said, we have a cash offer. Can you be out in um, 13 days when you get back home? So literally, we came home. We got back at 4.30 in the morning. I think we were up at 9, meeting with someone. And by that evening, we already had another place. Even for the new place that we were buying, I told him our story, and he called me back, and he said, oh, it sounds good. Your offer sounds good, and we'll go with it. So, by the way, when, when we read the realtor's news on that email, we didn't know whether just to start crying immediately or high-five each other. There was the gamut of emotion uh, going on at that time. Um, the Lord works in mysterious ways, and instance, uh, I think he had a plan for us to go ahead and buy the farm and uh, kind of move move forward. So out of the big American dream and into a, uh, a cozy little two-bedroom, and I flew down later uh, that summer, at the end of the summer, and uh, wired money down and signed some papers and Next thing I knew, I had a farm and all the responsibility that comes with it. In the meantime, while you're going back and forth, you know, living in this much smaller two-bedroom, putting all this money right. into Nicaragua, uh, how do your friends and family react to all of this? Well, I told you earlier, you know, a lot of them thought we were crazy and what happens if the government takes your property or the Sandinistas roll in in a, you know, in a, in a big army truck. and And so... Some thought it was great. Some thought we were crazy. Uh, I think it's really kind of it's really outside the box for people that haven't been to really understand. It's just kind of way out there in left field, and everyone's really secure in the American dream and their brand new cars and um, the latest cell phone and standing in line for two days for the brand new iPhone four and they're just so wrapped up in me, 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 instead of, you know, what can I do to serve and how can I love on other people? And so I think until you, you hit that point and you really understand it's really not about us, it's about serving, um, you know, it, it only took me 40 years to kind of learn that lesson. So I really think I kind of get it at this point. We're just trying to do, you know, what we can for, for, uh, not only folks in Nicaragua, but um, around our community. There are some people who have been going to Nicaragua with you on these mission trips who are starting to catch some of that same vision, right? Yes, I think so. Um, the young man that I talked about, Tyling, he went with us on the first trip, and he's the only one that's been every single time, and he's at the right age of 20, I think, right now. So for the last four years, he's been going uh, quite faithfully, without missing a beat, and he's just been uh, a great addition. Um, friends of his have come along uh, during the years that we've gone down, and this year I think he's going to be there in extended stay. And even to point out, when he goes down and he stays in extended stay, um, he stays with a uh, pastor and his family in a very non-American home and lifestyle, but he loves the culture so much that he just likes to kind of immerse himself in the culture 
and uh, I think on, even on Facebook he's taken their last name, so he can't get that much. <laughs> yeah. So, so there have been a few others that have made um, uh, the trip several times. I uh, even think uh, your four-year-old daughter is ready for her second trip to Nicaragua. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, this summer will be my third time, and my wife's second time. The four-year-old Charlotte's second time, uh, and Mary, my two-year-old's first time. <laughs> I still can refl- reflect um, the first time that we met uh, you and Jennifer, and and I can still vaguely remember many moons ago. Um, with Jennifer's um, uh, ideas and trips to China, and I just thought, you know what, that is so far, that is so far outside of my thought process and and going to China and doing this missions thing, and how could they ever do that? um, But it's funny to fast forward the clock 10 10 years down the road or however many it's been, and I'm right there along those same lines. I think uh, it just took me a lot longer. Yeah, now you're leading the mission trips. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty pretty, uh, pretty neat, I guess. And thinking of you know my family going, one of the things I actually really like about your trips is the flexibility where there aren't many mission trips that I could bring a four-year-old and a two-year-old along. Or, you know, you really allow people to kind of figure out what their skills or gifts or interests are. Like, you know, if you're, if you're good at laying tile, Hey, we'll find a church that needs tile and come on down. Absolutely. I mean, we have folks that, um, they're hairdressers in their professional American life. And so what can they do? Well, certainly they can cut hair because haircuts are really expensive in Central America. I think women pay about $2 and men pay just under a dollar for a haircut. So she's able to serve um, the folks down there by giving haircuts. And we have a a music teacher that's going this year, so she's able to serve by um, leading some of the VBSs and with the music program that we have um, within within the VBS. Some of the simplest things and then some of the more technical things that people are blessed with. Uh, We have a, a second group coming from Lakeland, Florida this year. And one of their members, uh, he builds million-dollar homes. And so, um, although he won't be building a million-dollar home in Nicaragua, um, he's going to bring his skill set along with their team, and they're going to do some construction projects. But I think it's important for us to allow the people that are coming to use their strengths and whatever they're really good at um, to be able to serve the folks in Nicaragua. And um, they may not think that they have a good skill set, but they find out once they get there that whatever it is that they do well, um, they're really able to to serve in a way that suits them and the group. And they find that out real quick, that it doesn't have to be something uh, really off the charts. Just as simple as giving a haircut is really a blessing for a lot of people. And it sounds so simplistic. And then you mentioned... Um, different ages. We have, well, Mary's, what, two years old now, or just about? Two and, two and a half, yeah. And then, and then we have um, we have two gentlemen, one of my neighbors, uh, they're in their 70s, and they're making their first trip to uh, Central America. So we certainly don't limit it. We just say, you know, if a family wants to go, um, and for instance, in your case, you have two small ones, so 
uh, maybe during a couple of uh, events, you may need child care. That's not a problem. We're able to work that out ahead of time, and we're able to accommodate you. I think it's our role as leaders. We just keep saying this over and over, like, how can we serve you? So your group's coming or your family's coming. Like, how can we make this work for you? And so I think we just try to keep that at the forefront um, right. for the groups and the individuals. Yeah, and I think you mentioned people being surprised how their unique talents or gifts or whatever are so useful. I remember the first time going four years ago and having, you know, a, a young child. And and it was amazing to me that, you know, so many people wanted to talk to me just because I had this little white girl, you know, and that opened so many doors. So, you know, I would have never imagined myself having a conversation with some Nicaraguan woman about children, you know, but uh, those sorts of things opened so many doors. Right, absolutely. And you find out that that um, once you can make a connection with someone, um, it seems like that it's it's everlasting. Um, everyone that we've kind of ever talked to, of course, we stick out as the white people in town. But it seems like year after year, we start to see kind of the same people, and we you know say hello and make the connection. I mean, even as um, <laughs> this is sounds really kind of crazy. But uh, there's a local Bixie driver, and Bixies are half taxis and half bicycles, um, and they are the taxis of the town, sort of like a reverse rickshaw. And so one of those Bixie drivers was giving us a ride, and the only English he knew was the U2 song, It's a Beautiful Day. And so that kind of stuck with us. And so every time I'd see him, you know, hey, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? And uh, so we made kind of this connection. And then this year, I have that CD. I've already sent it down on cargo um, through a ship. But um, I'm going to send that down to him just to know that all the simplest things um, that we can do to make connections, um, we're going to do. Speaking of music, and I know it's, it's – I wish I could have said that with a Casting Crown song or um, yeah. Redmond. But, you know, sometimes we kind of – kind of think outside the box along the same lines one of the guys that i know down there that teaches some of the poorest of the poor children in a place called swingless de luisa uh, he's on my facebook page and one time throughout the year he did the i like aerosmith and you know i was thinking well that's you know here he is 1300 miles away in central america and the guy likes aerosmith and i mean i like aerosmith too but that was something that I listened to when I was in my 20s, and I probably even have the greatest hits around here somewhere on CD. So I took that greatest hits CD, and while we were down there visiting the school, I said, hey, can I bring you over here to the side? I've got something to tell you and give you. And he said, sure. I said, I said, did you, did you like that group Aerosmith? I said, I saw you on Facebook. And he said, yeah. And so I pulled it out of my pocket and I handed it to him, and I said, here, I remember that. Um, and he said, oh, my, and he speaks some English, and he said, please look at my arms. And I looked down, and he had just goosebumps all over his arms and up his neck. And and he said, uh, how in the world did you remember? And, and Angela said, how could we forget, you know, or something so simple that we could make happen? I don't know if that's kind of a weird way of serving um, in some kind of, <laughs> some kind of crazy way, 
but that kind of lets him know that in, in a way we're, we're caring for him. And it seems like we've, over the years, we've kind of made a, a good friendship. And so uh, we've had some good conversations over the years. But I do, I think he's one of, you know, one of our friends in town. And um, it's neat to, even kind of on a weird level, serving and thinking of him, I guess, in a weird way. Yeah, so what do you want to see happen over the next five or ten years with your farm? Well, at this very moment, we are we're in the process of building a common area, and kind of what that means is we're doing a 15-meter by 15-meter, basically like a pole barn, and the idea for this is this is going to be the epicenter of uh, the farm, and our vision is um, that it could be a place where we could have missionaries come and hang out and have group times. It's a place where we could have pastor retreats. It's really whatever we can kind of dream up. And so really at this very moment, um, they are stacking uh, brick and uh, working on the footer right now. And so we're really excited to go down there and see it. Um, there's two more buildings that will be built after that. And there'll be a small little place for us to stay while we're there. And then there'll be sort of a kind of a two-room maybe bunkhouse and a kitchen that's attached to it. So we can have a few uh, folks that come down there and visit uh, a place to stay. And then uh, as we go, I think the idea is to build folks wanted to invest. We're allowing people from our group, if they wanted to invest and build a little casita, um, just a small little place for them to stay, which would in turn have be a place to stay for pastors on retreats that just never have that kind of stuff. In these pastor conferences, it's nice to bring in um, teachers to teach them about the Bible. I think only one pastor that we've met so far has been to seminary. Um, he's, he's the only one that's had some advanced training, some collegiate-type uh, training. This year, um, my wife's brother is coming, and he's a doctor. So we're looking into the whole medical thing, something we haven't done yet. So it's exciting to bring him along this year and to see how he can plug in and uh, his friends and, and colleagues in the city of Tampa, um, maybe how they can plug in. Because I guess that's our greatest goal each year is to open the eyes of the new folks that come and to see their wheels start spinning and how can they get plugged in. So I'm really excited for all the new people, especially that are coming this year. Um, and then obviously we want the farm to kind of support itself. Um, we're trying to buy animals and we plant fruit trees as much as we can buy. So one day uh, the harvest can support the farm and the animals can support the farm. And then we can turn around and do a little bit more with the money that we try to send down there. So it's kind of a long-term goal. You mentioned earlier you've got a daughter in high school. How how has this um, or how has she responded to all this? She loves it. Um, the last I was I got to fly down in April um, to do some pre-planning, and uh, she and my wife were incredibly jealous that they didn't get to go along. And uh, I can just imagine because if they got to go down to Nicaragua and I had to stay back here and go to school and work, I would be incredibly jealous too. But she seems to um, really enjoy it, enjoy the, the simple life down there, and hopefully we're able to open her eyes you know, to a whole other culture 
in a whole other world that you know isn't spoon-fed um, some of the luxuries of life like we are here in America. What's the most important thing you've learned that if if you could share one thing with other Christians and other churches, what what would you say? Well, I guess first of all that there's there's a whole other level to poverty that you just don't see here in America. You can see it on TV. I know you see commercials from time to time. But until you really walk into somebody's house that's 20 square feet um, or 30 square feet and it's made out of sticks and uh, plastic tarp or debris that they found on the road, and until you really kind of see that firsthand, you don't, I don't think you really can comprehend poverty. And so to help your brothers and sisters, I think that puts just like this big boldness on there. Um, it, it just seems so simple. Um, now that I've seen that in Nicaragua, and it's really it's all over the world, I think until you kind of get a grasp of what's out in this world, uh, what's outside the borders of the United States, um, there's some really some extreme poverty. Um, you know, kids are going to bed hungry. Uh, they're only eating one meal a day. They don't have shoes, um, much less a uniform to wear to school. Um, it's just all those things that I think we take for granted that we're able to uh, to help with. What would you say to a Christian who is just overwhelmed by that level of need and, and says, you know, there's nothing I can do that's going to make a difference in a in a world where people live in 20 square foot homes made of plywood and plastic? Well, I would say, you know, if you were on a trip and, and you kind of had that thought process, it, it, I think you just need to kind of take it all in. That's why we tell every member to kind of take three or four days just to take it in. And if you can just help one person, I mean, you know, if everyone had that attitude that you could just help one person or one family or two families, um, you'd be doing the world a great service, um, humanity a great service, um, doing it uh in God's name, uh, would be a great service. Um, and if everyone had that attitude, the world would be really a much better place. Poco a poco, you know, little by little, you know, one man can impact this world. And so I guess it's our idea to infect the members that we take down there to see, you know, this other side of life and think, wow, you know, just, you know, have a conversation with somebody if you, you know, that's in that position, and even though they're in extreme poverty, um, they really just kind of uh, love life down there, and live. They do live an incredibly simple lifestyle, but it's the kids are still happy. The kids still like to play. It, it doesn't change anything uh, within the person. That's the only life they know. So if you're able to impact them and uh, spread the word of God down there. Um, with your help, I mean, that's just, that's awesome. Spread the gospel, and we just hope that many more years that we can uh, facilitate taking groups to uh, to Central America. Thank you for your uh, time. Absolutely, and we'll get to meet again here in uh, a few weeks at uh, Monaco's International Airport. Okay. Yeah, 15 days. There's so much more than the little Steve and I barely touched on. 
Each year, members of the mission team have provided books and theological education for local pastors. The groups have led vacation Bible schools throughout the city. They have ministered in a home for severely disabled people. They provided curriculum materials for a local school. They provided food and clothing to malnourished children and so much more. And by working closely with local churches, they've been able to ensure that all their work is tied to the gospel in a way that people of Nagarote understand. This is not a social gospel separated from the message of salvation. And it's not just an evangelistic revival that preaches salvation while ignoring other human needs. God has given Steve a vision for a mission that seeks the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. If you'd like to learn more about the missions in Nagarote, you can check out their blog, missionnagarote.blogspot.com, and Nagarote is spelled N-A-G-A-R-O-T-E. And if you'd like to keep up with future Christ-like thinking interviews, you can subscribe through iTunes or at feeds.feedburner.com slash thinking. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. Send an email to ChristlikeThinking at gmail.com. Life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology?